Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 249 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks for hanging out here with me. Today, my guest is Mr. Tom Briggs. He's a graphic designer for specialized bikes, which I'm super into. And he's based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That's how we say it up here in Canada. Canada. During this episode, Tom shares with us the Jackson Pollock documentary that he watched and how design just clicked for him after that. We also talk about a chance meeting with a graffiti artist at an ice cream shop. What's that all about? You'll have to listen and hear a little bit about it. We talk a little bit about a design that he submitted for an F1 car, how that came to be. Talk a little bit about the space shuttle because why not? He then shares with us how a studio closure led to a very tough year and a half in his career. We talk about the nutcracker drawing that did not... (laughs) How do I word this? Uh, Let's just say um, the nutcracker drawing that just didn't look excited enough in what happened there. We also talk about the Tour de France project that he was a part of, why he's so proud of it. Gosh, and so much more. This was a fascinating conversation. Tom is an awesome dude, and I cannot wait to share this with you. So let's stop messing around and get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my fabulous guest today, Mr. Tom Briggs. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Tom, welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, Dave? Doing great, man. Glad to connect with you, my brother from back east, I guess it would be. Yeah, you're back east. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm out east in Toronto. Uh, originally from Vancouver, but yeah, out here now. All right, originally. See, so, yeah, I feel you. I feel it. I feel yeah. it. <laughs> Don, before we get too far into this, are you ready for a quickie? Absolutely. Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to start by kicking this over to you. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, yeah, um, my name is Tom Briggs. I, uh, I'm based in Toronto, Ontario. And I work as a graphic designer for specialized bicycles. Short and sweet and easy. Mm-hmm. How long have you been with specialized for? Uh, I've been there for just shy of two years now. Um, but I've been in the cycling industry for quite a while, about seven years in total. Um, I worked for a, a different bike company previously, uh, doing a similar role, doing graphics for them as well. Cool. So was that were you, so you were a graphic designer, thought, I, I like cycling. Hey, maybe I should work for a cycling company. Yeah, I think it was kind of like a long progression for me. So like, I think my, my initial intro into cycling kind of happened, you know, in my teenage years, um, Mm -hmm. my dad bought me a a mountain bike for my 14th birthday, uh, after I, you know, had originally asked for rollerblades. I'm really glad he made that decision instead. (laughs) Um, and that kind of threw me down this like sort of cycling journey and, uh, yeah, got super into mountain bikes and then you know, found BMX and then got really into like track bikes and riding those on the street. And then 
from there, you know, kind of found my way into the world of road cycling through working for a different company called Cervelo, um, yep. a Canadian uh, road cycling brand. Uh, so I worked there for about five and a half years and then, yeah, kind of kind of landed, uh, you know, at Specialized. I, I did a series of other design jobs prior to ever kind of getting to the cycling industry, but uh, ultimately that was, you know, that was kind of the path that I took and it was something that, you know, it was nice to marry, you know, my passion and hobby with, you know, my career path. Definitely. That's an awesome connection. What's that saying? You know, you love what you do. You never work a day in your life or something like that. Yeah, I think it's a great saying, but at the it's same time, like, true. it's not, no, no, there's, <laughs> there, there's elements to every job where, you know, you're grinding, you're working, uh, yep. you know, even if you're working on something you love, if it's 4 a.m., it's still 4 a.m. It's, it's still 4 a.m. There's no way around that. It's not 4 a.m., but I love what I'm doing. Yeah, no doubt. Exactly. <laughs> awesome, man. That's great. So two questions that are not design related. First up, what was that first mountain bike, the first ever? So first mountain bike for me was a GT Arrowhead. It's kind of like a uh, cross-country bike, like a, a relatively inexpensive one. I remember yeah. it had an RST fork on the front of it. It's a hard tail. Uh, yeah, had it for a long time. Uh, sadly, uh, I had a friend stay at my place when I I had an injury from a mountain biking later on and he decided he was going to borrow it for the day and it got stolen and that that's long gone now but uh yeah it was it was a great bike it got me got me hooked on everything that i'm doing now awesome and since you're into mountain biking and bmxing and the sort of road biking mm -hmm. what is the like the most badass trick you've ever done for me uh yeah. you seem like know. a backflip guy tom uh, I've never done a backflip on a bicycle. Uh, I've done them on skis, but never on a bicycle. Whoa. Um, I guess like, I don't know, like, uh, I can do, like, I can do a 360 on a, on a mountain bike. Uh, that's pretty Sweet. cool, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure. pretty cool. Let's the go with best that. trick that I've ever pulled off on a mountain bike is a sweet, like, I'm going to say about a four to five inch bunny hop. Okay. All right. Both, hey, both wheels, Tom, both wheels. Yeah. Perfect. I love it. You're, you're going in the right direction. It, yes. That's the that's the foundation. That's the building block. You figure out the bunny hop and everything comes from there. Yeah. What's killing me right now is the manuals, trying to pull off the manuals. I, it, that's okay. I've been riding my bike every day for like 20 some odd years and manuals still escape me. I don't, I don't have that sort of Jedi mindset for holding a manual for a long time. So yeah. I've I got, it sounds strange to say this. I've got it up twice. And it just, it's terrifying when it gets there. It's like, Oh God, no. Okay. Nope. Yeah. nope, nope. Just, just feather, feather that back break. You'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. So I want to kick this back a little bit more in time here for you, Tom. I want to hear about your childhood and what that was like. You know, we talked a little bit about your first mountain bike, but what was your childhood like? Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that pointed you down this design career path? Um, I don't like so I guess from the beginning, like I, I'm from East Vancouver originally mm -hmm. and spent a bit of time moving around um, as a kid. And uh, I didn't have like one of those sort of, you know, uh, kind of stereotypical designer childhoods where, you know, you couldn't pull the the pencil or the crayons out of their hand. You know, they were always drawing. Uh, it certainly wasn't like that for me. Um, my, my youth revolved a lot more around sports. Um, definitely like playing sports. My dad was heavily involved with like coaching my soccer team and things like that. Um, my dad's big into motorcycle racing. And cool. so I was introduced to sort of two wheels and that sort of obsession with two wheels really early on. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of like kind of how I got here, like I kind of think back on like my, you know, back in first grade, I remember 
we had a project, well, I guess not really a project, but we had like a, a, a time in class where we like, okay, now is art time. Like you're going to uh-huh. draw or whatever. And I remember sitting there with my crayons or whatever it was at the time and being really proud of something that I had made. And I don't remember what it was. I could have been drawing dinosaurs or dragons, <laughs> spacemen or whatever. Um, but I remember sort of being, feeling proud of that. And then, you know, the teacher kind of stopped and went, okay, like, you know, we're done with that. And I looked over at my friend, Calvin, who was sitting next to me. And I'm sure my mind has warped this over the years, but I remember looking at his piece of paper and I remember it as like, basically like a photorealistic drawing of Bambi. Like it was like a Disney animator had been seated next to me. And I remember looking at that and looking back at my piece of paper and going like, oh boy, like I don't really think that I'm cut out for this. Um, And I don't think, it wasn't like an earth shattering event. It's not like, oh my God, like I'm not gonna be an artist or anything. Uh I just think uh it kind of, it kind of made me go like, maybe this isn't my path. Um, And then I think, you know, we fast forward a bunch of years and I was living down in South America and Chile and I was in my high school art class in grade nine. And my uh, instructor decided to show us a documentary about uh, Jackson Pollock, the the abstract expressionist painter. And I remember being like totally dumbfounded, like blown away. Like the fact that, you know, it was so expressive and so, you know, uh, just like interesting what he was doing with this sort of splatter paintings. And it was sort of that realization that dawned on me that you don't have to be able to draw, like it doesn't all have to be figurative to, to be good art. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that really kind of like opened my mind up to like what art could be. And then from there, like, I think, you know, I think like most people that kind of find design, or at least most people sort of in my sort of sphere, you know, it's like graffiti and skateboarding and sports yep. jerseys and, and magazines. Magazines were huge for me uh, as mm-hmm. a kid, um, you know, in terms of influence. Uh, I had like a learning disability as a kid where like my, I couldn't read very well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it was something that just didn't click for me for a long time. I read fine now, but you know, it took a really long time for me to kind of get that sorted. And I think that initially, um, you know, staring at a wall of text in a book was just anxiety inducing. My parents kind of caught on to that and decided like, hey, like magazines seem to be a little bit like a, a bit of a softer landing pad for him to kind of try and read. And, you know, it was like the layout and the illustration and the photography and all of that that kind of went into it. And so, you know, my parents were super well off, but anytime I showed interest in wanting to read something, especially a magazine, they would they'd get it for me. And so, you know, my I essentially learned to read by reading skateboarding magazines and soccer magazines and mountain bike magazines, stuff like that. And that's, that's certainly carried over to today. It's a huge magazine obsession still. That's awesome. So that answer actually might tie into this next question, but I'm going to go with it anyways here. Um, during this, you know, trajectory, you got the Jackson Pollock video and that's when your mind just starts opening up and you're, you start just digesting magazines and seeing the content and the layout and photos and all of this artwork. Mm-hmm. But is there anything that stands out to you in that time period that was the most influential design that you that you saw? Something that you saw and has just stuck with you since? Yeah, like I think that, you know, I think those early magazines were definitely like a, a, a huge sort of transformational kind of thing for me and, and mm-hmm. sort of realizing that, you know, it was... Uh, you know, there was, there was that kind of world out there, but at that point, like I wasn't thinking about any sort of vocation in design at, at any point. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the thing that kind of led me a bit more to where I've landed now was like, you know, I had like those sort of, I, I'd, I'd call them something like the obsession years or whatever. Like I, 
I had these years kind of in like 2005, 2006, 2007, kind of in that range where, you know, I almost couldn't consume enough design content and enough art content. It was almost like I kind of discovered a world that I didn't know existed. Um, hmm. And I remember at the time I was living back in Vancouver. Um, I would have been pretty young, like 18, 19 years old. And I was working in a, an ice cream shop, you know, just scooping ice cream. Um, and this one night I, I guy came in not not too much older like he was probably in his like mid 20s late 20s and for whatever reason we got talking i don't remember why um but he introduced himself as a graffiti artist named who went by the name other who's actually been, become quite well known kind of worldwide at this point mm -hmm. um and uh he mentioned that he had a gallery opening that night at a small gallery in vancouver and i didn't know anything about this world whatsoever and <laughs> yeah i remember i you know I, I'm kind of a, a reserved, shy person when I'm, you know, around people I don't know. But for whatever reason that night, I decided oh, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to check it out. And so I, uh, I wandered over there, and it was like a thing where, like, you had to go through a back alleyway and like up this fire escape to get into the gallery. Um, and I walked in there, and I didn't know anybody. Um, but it was almost like it was a really eye-opening event for me, where I was like, wow, like this is like a whole other world, a different side of the city that I didn't know. And, and then so you that get there and he turns and he goes, Hey, ice cream guy. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it was a little, it was a little bit like that. It was more like, Oh, you came like, cool. And uh, yeah, we, we talked a little bit like I I'm positive that he has no recollection of this whatsoever. I was yeah. just a guy scooping ice cream, but it was like kind of a transformational night for me, you know, sort of seeing that world. And then I think from there it was, I think it kind of just opened up a bunch of stuff for me. I, I started to discover things, um, you know, in the art world that I didn't know existed. There was uh, Upper Playground, the brand from San Francisco that, you know, pushed a lot of graffiti and street art stuff. And um, I remember seeing a video by them called Dithers and it was kind of like formatted like a skateboard video. Everybody had sort of a part, um, but it was like artists, you know, they, they sort of showcase their work, talk about it. And some of those artists would become my favorite artists ever now, you know, um, and then from there, it was like, you know, the cycling component kind of stepped in, MASH, mm -hmm. uh, SF, which is sort of kind of a track bike related brand and crew out of San Francisco. Uh, I remember seeing that video and that that definitely sent me like down a rabbit hole with that world. And then, you know, things like Helvetica, like the Gary Hustwit film and, and you know, IDN magazine out of Hong Kong. And, and then just friends around me, uh, me to my partner was a huge uh, influence. Her name's Courtney. And, you know, she was going to art school at the time and I had never considered the idea that you could make a living doing this. Like that just, I don't know. I was probably just really naive and had no idea. I, I thought I was going to be a political science major and um, you know, she was studying photography and kind of said like, yeah, like, you know, you can sell your work, you can have shows, you can do design. Like, you know, this is it sort of opens things up. And so I opted to go to design school at that point or art school. Uh, I was rejected four times. Uh, finally, finally got in. Um, well, you know what they say? Fifth time's the charm, Tom. <laughs> Apparently. <It> worked, <laughs> it, it worked for me. It worked for me. And then, yeah, just uh, finding friends that were interested in the same thing, you know, trying to make T-shirts with my buddies and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Tom, before I get into some of the tough questions, the stuff that drags you through the mud a little bit of the dirty times in your career, I wanted to first up pull up your Instagram feed on the screen here. I'm going to pick a couple of posts just at random, and I want to hear the story behind them. I want to learn a little bit more about what's going on inside the mind of Tom Briggs. Sure. All right. So we got this up on screen here. There's plenty to pick from. Lots of bike stuff, of course. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to go with three. So the mountain biker in me says this is the first one. 
Okay. Um, this one okay? Oh, I yeah, yeah, there we go. I can see that one. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. When you live in Toronto, you kind of have to get out there whenever you can. Um, this was shot kind of in the middle of winter here. Um, it's uh, just for anybody like I'll describe it. Um, essentially, it's uh, me on my bike taking a photo behind the handlebars of a, a mountain bike corner here in what's called the Don Valley, um, which is just on the east side of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was just a uh, it was nice to get out, um, you know, in the winter, you kind of got to make do. I think I had icicles growing off my beard at the end of this <laughs> ride. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, one of those moments where it, the, the snow sort of outlined the trail. And that's one of the better corners in the dawn. I uh, definitely have a, have a lot of fun on that trail. And and the bike was relatively new. It's uh, it's my new uh, specialized enduro that I was riding there. So yeah, just sort of a, a cool moment to, to kind of take in what, what I was doing at the time. Yeah, I love these shots and this like point of view angle stuff. My son and I watch a lot of like the YouTube mountain bikers and just sort of get the whole like POV point of view stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, riding trails and learning different trails and stuff like that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, in this Vancouver Fraser Valley area, I mean, there's so much riding here. So, oh, yeah. You guys have the, it's the best in the world, really, out there. You know, the North Shore is where it all kind of started with free riding. And uh, yeah, yeah, those those trails are incredible. Definitely. Okay. So that's the mountain biker in me. Uh, the design side, I want to go to this one here. You said there's a little bit of a story behind this. Um, so go ahead and tell me what's going on here. And I'm going to sort of scroll through these as we. Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah. So the, uh, the image is of a, a Formula One car model. Uh, this is a, a half scale, a true half scale model of an actual Formula One car. Um, this is a project that I worked on with uh, my friend, Albert Fan, um, who I actually still work with at Specialized and mm -hmm. we're, We've worked uh, multiple jobs together over the years. I almost feel like we kind of just chase each other around in terms of our <laughs> career. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, when I had I had been working um, with Great Britain on their Olympic bikes for the 2016 Rio Olympics okay. uh, um, while I was working at Cervelo. And through that, I was introduced to a, a paint facility in England um, called uh, Silverstone Paint Technologies. Um, wonderful humans. Some of the, the nicest people I've ever worked with in, in my design career. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of painters uh, and they're all great, uh, but these guys were kind of different. It was almost like talking to chemists as opposed to talking to painters. There was cool. not necessarily an artisan sort of quality. It was more of a highly technical precision. And uh, the, ma the majority of their businesses, they paint about half of the F1 grid. Um, so half the cars that are out there. And through talking to them, um, you know, and see kind of some of the stuff that they were doing, it was suggested that maybe uh, myself and Albert, who they had also talked to, um, take a crack at designing an F1 car. And really it was kind of open. It was just like, Hey, we have this model. If you want to try it, go for it. Um, and so we had total freedom. We could have done anything we wanted. Um, but we knew that they had worked with uh, Haas F1, um, the, the race team. Yeah. And so it kind of gave us a, a, an interesting benchmark. We knew what that car looked like. We knew that there was a relationship there. Um, between Silverstone and between Haas. And we kind of went, hey, like, I wonder if we could kind of re-envision this. And so we used all the same sponsorships and uh, sponsor logos and tried to create a new sort of narrative behind the design. Um, Haas is a CNC manufacturer. And a lot of times their cars, I think, lean on the, the, the aesthetics of the Haas brand. But we wanted to focus very much on like what the actual output of a CNC machine looks like. So the stepping mm -hmm. that you get in the material, a lot of the pathways that are cut with the CNC cut, cutting heads. And we sort of built the whole design language for the car around that. So the gradient cut lines through through the uh, through the body of the, 
the car kind of are the steps within the cutting machine. And then uh, the Haas logo is actually a pathway that co carves all the way around the car. So both logos are linked all the way around. And uh, yeah, it was just something that we, we took a crack at. And, um, you know, I think by painting it on a real uh, model, we were able to kind of figure out what it, what was needed in that 3D space and within the Formula One world where it was more than just like, hey, I, I kind of drew up something in a render. It was, we, we actually had to figure it all out completely. And yeah, super amazing project. Super thankful to Silverstone uh, Paint Technologies for letting us uh, give it a go. And uh, yeah, uh, it would happen four years ago, but we've just recently talked about it uh, publicly. Um, that is a cool project. I'm a big, I'm a fan of F1. I don't follow it as closely as I should right now, but love F1 and especially the documentary on Netflix, sort of getting a peek behind the scenes and sort of how it all goes down. Yeah, it's super cool. Just being able to know the guys over at Silverstone, um, they're, you know, they, like, you know, they, they have to keep a lot of stuff under NDAs, but they kind of tell me just about like what it's like to work within the F1 world. And, mm -hmm. and that's su super cool, super fun to, to hear about. Definitely. Okay. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with this one. Yeah, totally. Um, so that's, uh, that's one of the space shuttles, uh, discovery, um, yeah. back right before the pandemic hit, uh, I guess it was, uh, new year's of 2020, I guess. Yeah. So late 2019, early 2020, yeah. um, my partner and I took a road trip to Washington, DC. Um, just wanted to check something different out. You know, we'd never been to DC before and we were down there and I've had kind of a, an obsession with space, you know, my whole life, yeah. just fascinated with the idea of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I grew up, you know, like the Apollo missions obviously went to the moon and that's like incredible, but it was all before I was born. And so yep. I grew up in kind of the space shuttle era and, you know, it was something I always see on TV and, you know, the, the, the building of the international space station, I still think is probably like the greatest human achievement ever. Um, and it's pretty so, incredible. Yeah, totally. To have people be able to live up there, you know, around the clock, uh, it's it's amazing. And so, the there's a, a museum outside of DC where one of the the space shuttles is housed. And so mm -hmm. one day we went up there and checked it out, and I was like a you know a kid in a candy store. It's just really super exciting to actually see one of those things up up close and in person. I couldn't imagine, especially being beside something that was in space. Totally, like, just yeah. such a weird feeling. I bet. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Like just to, to understand the history in that machine and what it's seen and where it's gone. And I think so much of like what I do within my own design career is a, a lot of it, especially like the racing side of things is like kind of having a, a, a historical marker in time that kind of, you know, encapsulates that moment where that bike yeah. was used or anything like that. And then, yeah, you look at a space shuttle and go like, Oh my God, like how many times has this thing circled the earth? How long has it been you know, <laughs> off the planet? And yeah, it's just, a, it's on another level. I think, I think, yeah. you know, I've always dreamt of working in, uh, on, on bikes, but you know, I think if anybody, if anybody at NASA or SpaceX or anybody's listening and they, they need anything for any design work shot off this planet, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to them. That'd be yeah, Tom, you got a guy here, right, Tom? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, are you like me where you, every time there's a SpaceX launch of some kind, you're always just checking it out live? Or the, if you can't, you know, you're watching the, all the YouTube videos and follow up after? Yeah, yeah, I definitely like uh, subscribe to both the SpaceX and NASA YouTube channels. Uh, those are, those are, are, are regular watches for me, for sure. Such a cool thing. Um, I'm going to go with one more here on the art side. This one stands out to me. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is just uh, one of the uh, um, galleries that we went into, one of the art galleries in D.C. Uh, this is a Barbara Kruger piece. And uh, yeah, just, you know, 
her body of work is so incredible and uh yeah getting to see uh some other pieces uh in that same feed there's a jackson pollock painting which we talked about earlier he was like yeah. one of the big influences for me early on and yeah, just, you know, kind of capturing all the amazing stuff that we got to see while we were doing there. Definitely, these are very much like kind of travel snapshots, but uh, both yeah. myself and, and my partner were both uh, huge, you know, art nerds. And so going to the galleries is always fun. Man, what a cool experience. There's a lot of really cool things in there. No doubt. Beautiful. Okay, man. Well, I, I hate to bring it to you, but it's time to get into the tough stuff, Tom. Sure. Yeah, Totally. So I got a couple of questions that, like I said, we'll we'll touch on some of the maybe the darker days in your career, the days where you learned some real good lessons. I want to pull those stories out, share those with the listeners, then we'll turn this around and finish up in a happy place. Sure, no problem. So, Tom, what's been the most challenging period of time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging, and how did you get through it? Um, like I think that all designers go through challenging points kind of continuously throughout their career, whether it's, you know, a project or a greater sort of event within their career. Um, I think for me, like to pinpoint one was probably the closing of the first studio I worked at. Um, first mm -hmm. studio was breadwinner creative agency, obviously no longer around, but, um, an amazing place to work. Uh, I landed a job there, um, while I was still in school, even, um, mm -hmm. during my final year, um, studying design and it was um, just a little bit of backstory on it there was it was owned by two designers um and i was the only employee we had a few interns as well uh throughout the years um which is how i met albert uh the guy who i designed the f1 um livery with uh okay. he uh, he was an intern there um and i worked there for about three years and we had a client list that was basically made up of people that i always wanted to work for things i always wanted to do so um, we got to work with Nike and uh, Red Bull, uh, Moog Music, the synthesizer company from North Carolina, which was really great. Um, got to design a skateboarding magazine while I was there and a surfing magazine. Um, even did an issue of a snowboarding publication at one point while I was there. Um, and yeah, it really just kind of it encapsulated what I wanted to be doing as a designer. Um, you know, like we were, you know, I'm sure we were probably scraping by not making a ton of money or anything. It was a really small studio. Um, but ultimately the two owners, um, Ben and Nick decided to, to part, uh, ways and, and, and do different things. And, you know, they were, they were super kind about it. Uh, very upfront with me. I kind of had been notified that it might be coming. So it wasn't like they blindsided me one day or anything like that, but Got it. you know, it was this place that I had no intention of leaving at that point. Um, and, uh, then I was sort of, you know, left kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, what's next? You know, I had all these amazing projects that I, I loved and, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know where my next turn was. And so I briefly took a job, um, with the publishing company that did the skateboarding magazine, uh, and surfing magazine. And I did that very, very, uh, very briefly, not for a long time. And, uh, ultimately it, you know, it was, it was a good experience, but I think that, you know, I wasn't ready to be kind of heading up that, uh, at that point, you know, as like the sole designer within a publishing uh, house. And so, uh, I, I needed to find a, a different path than I had been interviewing and a question that had been asked of me in pretty much every interview is like, how are you working in large groups? And, you know, I'd always kind of fudge the answer a little bit and go like, Oh, I'm pretty good at it. But, you know, I had worked with two other individuals and then in a publishing company of about six. And so really I, I couldn't answer it honestly. And so I kind of looked at that and went, okay, like I got to, maybe I need to try a larger uh, place to work at. So uh -huh. I went and worked in advertising uh, for about a year. 
I had a friend that worked there and she was very helpful in, in kind of helping me get a role there. And, you know, I was, you know, super thankful for the opportunity to try that, but it was, it became, um, it became very obvious to me pretty quickly that the content of what I was making was more important to me than being, you know, than, than pushing pixels. I, you know, I love design and I love being a designer, but I think the motivation for me was always, it always involved whatever the content was. And mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have a love for a lot of the projects I was doing there. Um, and the, the hours were really long. Um, and I just didn't feel creatively fulfilled. Um, so I think that that, that like year, year and a half trying to sort of sort that out was probably the, the roughest time for me. Um, you know, I certainly kind of questioned at that point, like, you know, is design the right path for me? Like maybe I found that one amazing place to start my career, but maybe, you know, everywhere else wasn't going to be quite the same. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, kind of found my way into the bike industry and sort of, you know, re reignited that fire of, uh, Hey, like I love the content that I'm working on. I love the, the, the output that I'm able to produce and, uh, yeah, it just made it made it a little bit more tangible to me and not just, you know, advertising that felt at times a bit throwaway. Um, mm -hmm. That was just my perception. Like the, the advertising company was amazing. They did some incredible work. It just the projects that I was working on just didn't always resonate with me super strongly. Yeah. So that's an important move, you know, being involved with bikes, something that you're passionate about and biking. For sure. That is a really nice connection where you can sort of you know, for, for lack of a better term, you almost built helping build a legacy. I think, I think so. Yeah. To a degree, like I, I know that there are designers that have worked at specialized before me that were huge influences in my career, uh, and finding, um, you know, they kind of helped me help push me in this direction. I, I, I think very, uh, very much better. There was a designer, his name was Garrett Chow. Um, I, I don't know him personally, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've reached out and kind of let him know that he was like a massive influence on me very early on. He uh, basically was a, he was a designer within specialized, but he was part of that mash uh, SF crew that I sort of mentioned earlier. Uh -huh. And it seeing his work. Um, I remember seeing a bike that he designed for Mark Cavendish. who's like one of the most famous cyclists in the world. Um, and it was kind of earth shattering for me at that time. Um, understanding like, Hey, the, there's a, a person that comes from a world that's similar to me, you know, comes from like riding track bikes on the street into graffiti into, you know, kind of more counterculture subculture kind of uh, elements. And they're working at this like global scale at this global level, doing work for some of the biggest names in the sport. Um, and yeah, like it was, it was eye opening to me. So I feel like, you know, he, like him and others have kind of started that legacy and yeah, hopefully like I'm just a, a part of that uh, part of that story as well. And, you know, having now been able to also work with Mark Cavendish, it was like a nice sort of tie through and being able to kind of work with the same athletes that he had worked with before. And yeah, I think mm. it's just part, part of the long story of it all. That's cool. What great opportunities, you know, can, I guess continue the legacy would be, would be the right way to word that then. Yeah, totally. I think so. Got it. Tom. So for this next one, I want to get a little bit more specific. Can you take us to a specific design or project that you've been a part of that did not go well, did not bring the desired result? Um, what was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's been numerous projects that, you know, 
have not always landed in exactly the right spot um, yeah. for, for whatever reason, whether that's, you know, the client wasn't stoked or, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't me that was stoked, you know, on the process. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I think, I think one that comes to mind and I'll, I'll keep the, the names of the companies uh, yeah, yeah, to myself, but, but just in, in general, I think there was, there was a project when I worked at the ad agency um, that, you know, I think it just kind of put into focus what, what I wanted to be doing or, or more that what I didn't want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, a, essentially like a big box kind of retailer that had a series of, uh, a series of stores that were all under different names mm -hmm. and they approached the, the ad agency and wanted to do a Christmas campaign. Um, and they wanted to combine all of their retailers, all of their different brands, their stores, um, into one sort of singular ad. Um, so the concept was that they, you know, they wanted to almost personify each store, give them kind of a caricature, give them a, a way of sort of talking about each brand. Um, and ultimately with the, with an art director, it was decided that we were going to, uh, draw them as, as nutcrackers, the, the sort of Christmas toy. Um, and I'm, I don't consider myself an illustrator by trade, definitely a designer first, but I can draw. And so I, uh, you know. I whipped up these nutcrackers that, you know, I, I still think the drawings are actually quite good, you know? Um, and I remember we went into, to, um, to the first meeting, uh, first design review and, uh, they, they seemed excited about the idea. They were like, Hey, this is great. You know, we really like the execution. We like kind of the, the aesthetic. We're just really concerned that the, the nutcrackers don't look excited enough. <laughs> and I was kind of like, you know, I was like, okay, like that's cool. Whatever. Sure. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. can work with that. And so, you know, the, they leave, I go back, you know, redo the drawing a little bit, uh, you know, make the, I open the mouths of the nutcrackers a little wider. So that, you know, now it looks like they're a little bit more, you know, uh, excited. Their eyebrows are raised. They've kind of got some, some of that, the facial characteristics are a little bit more excited. Mm -hmm. And so we go back in for the second meeting uh, and, uh, I remember, you know, again, they were like, yeah, this is great. We really like it, but, but we need them more excited. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, well, they're already pretty excited. Like this is, this is a little extreme. Uh, <laughs> guys, these nutcrackers are clearly already a little bit excited. Exactly. And so, uh, I, I remember the suggestions started pouring out and, you know, it was make the mouths wider. And then ultimately the, the big, the big one was we want their hands up in the air you know, make them, make them look super excited. And so I'm now thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, they're not crackers. Like they can only kind of move in certain directions. And, you know, I didn't, I wanted to kind of keep it within the sort of a relatively realistic world. And so, you know, I made, I'm, I'm almost doing this live while I'm, I'm sitting there with the client and make the mouth even wider. And now the arms are in the air. And I remember the client being like, perfect. That's amazing. And all I could think was, it looks like these nutcrackers are being held up at gunpoint in a firing squad. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Ma like arms in the air, mouths wide open, looking horrified. And they, they signed off on it right then and there, basically They're like, this is it. This is the campaign. And uh, yeah, like from, uh, from the perspective of the client, I think they ultimately got what they wanted. But from my perspective as a designer, just kind of watching this sort of unfold and, and having to sort of participate in it, I just kind of went like, I don't know if this is quite right for me. And, uh, you know, it was like one of those sort of like latter moments of my time yeah. at the ad agency and, mm -hmm. and realizing, hey, I need to do something else. Um, some of my coworkers that I worked with at the time knew my sort of distaste for that particular project. And uh, the, the, project, the, the campaign ran for four years and every year, 
I'd get photographs from my old coworkers being like, look what I saw. And there'd be like a billboard. Uh, one year they turned them into like cardboard cutouts that you could stick your head through the mouth of them. And uh, yeah, I think they even made them break dance in a video at one point. And yeah, it was, you know, so I guess from a client perspective, it, uh, you know, it was uh, a success, uh-huh. but from a, you know, what it did to me as a designer, it ultimately, I think, it closed a chapter on my design career where I went, I, I don't think that this is, this is what I want to be doing. Um, mm-hmm. and needed to find something else. And so, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I think every, every designer has to find a, a space where they want to work and where they feel yeah. comfortable working and something that kind of, you know, nobody gets into design, I think, because, you know, it's like a massive paycheck. I think it's, we get into design cause we want to make really amazing creative stuff and, for me, that was that was a, a realization moment where I went, hey, I, I want to do something different that I'm more passionate about. I think that's going to be the title of this episode is Nutcrackers at Gunpoint. <laughs> hey, I, I've heard worse titles than that. We can go with that, sure. I love it. <laughs> okay, Tom. Um, last tough one, but what is something you are struggling with in your design career right now? Um, I... So like, I, I actually think I'm, I'm going pretty well right now. Everything's kind of going good, but I think, you know, I think a lot of, I think this probably applies to a lot of like in-house designers, people that work, you know, at a company, not necessarily at a studio mm-hmm. that deals with a lot of different brands is, um, you know, that sort of like internalized fear that maybe the outside world is viewing you as only being able to do a single thing. You know, like I've been designing bikes now for seven years, um, mm-hmm. do other stuff within my job. Uh, we just designed a book that came with a, a limited edition bike. So, you know, doing some publication work, doing some apparel work, um, working on some of our equipment as well, shoes, helmets, things like that with our, you know, with our teams, you know, none of this is sort of done solely. We all work as sort of a big collaborative group, but mm-hmm. um, making sure that the world kind of sees that the skill set is, is wider, you know, and, and not that this is coming up well, uh, like, like I'm obviously working at Specialized and, and enjoying my time there. But, you know, there's that fear after seven years of, of designing bikes, you know, is there, you know, are people looking at it going like, okay, well, this guy's really good at designing bikes, but can he design anything else? And, you know, I think that that's a bit of a struggle. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Totally. All right, Tom, that's enough of the tough stuff. I'm going to turn this bus around here for you. And now I want you to tell me about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of, one that just makes your heart sing. Totally. Um, I think it, it's this one's really hard. I think there, there has to be two. Um, there's definitely like two that are almost of equal measure for me. Um, the 2015 Tour de France, um, I worked uh, on the first African um, entry uh, into uh, the tour. Um, it was a team called Team MTN Quebec. Um, in the 101 year history at that point of the tour, no African team had ever participated. Um, and Cervello, who I was working for at the time, uh, had sponsored the team and we wanted to do a limited edition bike that celebrated their sort of entry into the tour. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got to design that with the team. Um, every bike that they rode in the tour was one of those bikes. Um, and one of the really amazing parts of that was, uh, the team MTN is a telecommunications company in that operates down there, but, um, Quebec is a, uh, a charity organization that functions out of South Africa. And what they do is they provide bikes to, um, kids down there, you know, transportation to get to school, um, you know, mm-hmm. helping out, you know, uh, in, in different ways to make sure that children have mobility. Um, and so 
one of the the things behind the bike was that we were selling replicas of it and for every replica sold a, a bike would be donated to the organization um obviously the 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 race bikes that we were designing aren't very functional for a child so they, they were a different bike that was a little bit more robust that we were giving them um and you know being able to do that and raise uh you know be able to raise enough funds with the team um to donate five thousand bikes to that organization wow. was massive you know super rewarding um i also got to to travel the entire tour with the team um I, I do some videography work every now and then and uh, yeah. kind of got to do some video work at the tour. And um, we launched those bikes at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, which was really amazing to kind of see, you know, to see one of my bikes sitting in front of a giant Rembrandt was a bit of an odd, uh, odd experience, but uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely memorable. Um, and then, yeah, just being able to do that. And the design of the bike was really trying to, you know, incorporate the uh the charity component it was kind of a chrome finish on the bike and the idea behind that was that you could any any person could walk up to the bike look at it and see themselves reflected in it as though they were part of the actual charity themselves um, oh cool and so really that that was like that was a massive one and you know just to be able to be a participant uh, in the tour de france as a designer was was huge at that point i had i had only done one bike for the tour pre previously um and to be able to do the entire team was was huge so i think that was that's probably one project. And then the other one is definitely being able to work with uh, Great Britain, uh, the country for their 2016 Olympic bid. Um, we designed all their track bikes for the velodrome there. And uh, that's obviously how I made the connection with the F1 car that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, getting to, you know, having grown up with my sort of younger years being heavily involved in sports, I think like most kids, I, I dreamed of going to the Olympics and wanting to do that and you know never quite achieving that but kind of getting to go uh you know almost in spirit with those bikes was huge and and they were super successful uh they won 11 medals and set two world records on them so yeah the most successful team on the track that year so that that would be the other one so those were those were definitely the two what incredible moments you know to have um you know to have the history for and so how many times during that season when they're winning more medals are you like my bikes yep <laughs> Oh mine. The, the the nice thing about the Olympics is it's so compacted into like basically a week's worth of competitions that it's kind of yeah. like it all comes flooding in all at once and you can kind of just sit there and be proud and then you know like any job I'm by the time they were riding at the velodrome I was already like a year down the line with other projects so it's quite humbling when you're like oh it's amazing we won oh but I got to go back to work now yeah <laughs> exactly time to back to the grind exactly man what a great great answer to um, nearly wrap up here with Tom so you've reached the point of the show here for the ask it forward question this is okay. where I have a question for you from my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest I'm not going to okay. tell you who they are but you can ask them anything okay so Sounds saying good. that my last guest was Jeremy Slagle from Slagle Design out of Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. Okay. <laughs> um, and he wanted to ask you, what is your dream client or your dream job? And the follow-up to that is more of a motivational um, wanting to hear where your mind's at. And it's simply, will you get there? Will it happen to you? Sure. Um, hmm dream like there there's a lot of dreams i feel like i feel like my entire career has been a checklist from when i was 12 years old just trying to figure out okay can i do that yeah can i do that yeah 
So you still got that like Lamborghini Countach poster that's that you still got to check off though. It's kind of- I, I did get to work with Lamborghini at one point. That, 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 that was kind of an odd one. We did a we did a bike with them at one point. So that was that was kind of uh, kind of fun. So I feel like I got to check that box a little bit. Um I think so for me, like I, I'm a massive football fan, uh American football. And I think the opportunity to brand, like do the branding and uniform design for an NFL team would be like maybe like peak design career moment for me. Um, I've been obsessed with football since I was a little kid. Uh, My mom pulled out a, an old like Christmas wish list from when I was like six years old a, a few months back. And it was literally just NFL jerseys. <laughs> and so I, not much, <laughs> not much has changed over the last 30 years. Um, yeah. But uh, I think that that would be, yeah, maybe that would be the, the one and it will, I, will I reach it? I, I certainly hope so. That'd be super cool. Um, I think, you know, I, I do work in the sports uh, sort of space right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of that design work goes through Nike. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe I could find my way there. I definitely know how to work with, with painting stuff. So obviously helmet design and, and painting uh, comes in with the football. So yeah, maybe. I, I, I hope maybe one day it can become a reality. That'd be cool. I like that. I like that. Tom, what is the ask it forward question you would like me to ask the next guest? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, thought, I thought it'd be cool. Like I'm always really interested in people's kind of like, like the, the the podcast really focuses on kind of their design, the design component of their life. But I'm always curious, like, how'd you get here? Like what happened right before? So I'm curious as to what their least designerly job was that they held prior to becoming a designer. I know I held many, a lot of weird ones. So uh, okay, yeah, give, I, me a cu- give me a couple of yours then. Uh, I think some of the stranger ones, I worked at a mining company uh, at a, uh, like at a lab. Um, in what they called the crushing room. Basically they'd send core samples from all over the world and we'd have to use machinery to break them down into powders that could be tested. You um, worked in the crushing room. That's I all you need to say. Room. Yeah. So that, that, that was a bit of an odd one. Uh, I was a ski and snowboard technician. I'd mount ski bindings all day and things like that. Um, yeah, I worked as landscaper. I worked in record stores. I've had, I've had a, whole, a whole litany of jobs uh, over the years. I like that question. That is a quickie podcast first. So I like that. I'm going to move on. I'm going to ask the next guest that question for you. And with that, Tom, you've reached the end of the quickie podcast, man. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Awesome. It was fun. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to our fantastic chat here today. As always, if you're digging what you're hearing here on the Quickie Podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review. You can even do it on Spotify too. Leave a rating and a review. Um, And also in that rating and a review, tell me your favorite joke. Tell me a good joke. That'll make those like review reader people, uh, you know, wonder what's going on. Leave me a five-star review. Leave me a joke. Tell me why you like the show. I'd appreciate it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.